Mastermind Agent is proud to present success calls. Top real estate agents from across North America reveal their success secrets, strategies, and systems in up-close and personal interviews. You can find all the calls at www.mastermindagent.com. Hi, I'm Mike Cerrone with Mastermind Agent. This month's top agent is Sam Ferreri with Remax in Houston, Texas. Last year, he closed 286 transactions with a total sales volume of $29 million. His average sales price was $102,000, of which 19% were buyers and 81% were sellers. He operates a team with 10 members, three buyer agents, two listing agents, two transaction coordinators, one photographer, one videographer, and one team leader. Sam Ferreri is the team leader of the SAM team. He's been an agent for 39 years. In his best year, Sam sold 221 homes worth $40 million. In his career, Sam has sold over 8,500 homes. In this call, Sam talks about getting his license at 17 years old while he was a junior in high school and selling three homes his first month. His direct mail geographic farm that brings in 60% of his business. The old-fashioned, ugly postcard that's outpooling all the new, glossy postcards. The criteria he uses to determine if a neighborhood is farm-worthy. How he keeps in touch with his past client database and gets 30% of his business by repeat and referral. Why he uses five different databases to track his leads and deliver his messages. The secret to his success and longevity. Team dynamics, compensation, profit margins, and more. First, a quick word from our sponsor, Real GTV, real estate agent lead generation television. Need more referrals? Get a free script and simple three part plan used by a top agent to receive and close 74 referral transactions in one year. Just go to freereferralscript.com. That's freereferralscript.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome to the call, Sam. Yes, well, thank you very much. Nice to be here, Mike. Hey, Sam. It's great to have you here. Sam, before we talk about what you're doing now, let's go back for a minute and talk about what you did before you got into real estate. Well, I started my real estate career. I got my real estate license when I was 17 years old. So really, prior to that, I was a junior in high school. Prior to that, I worked at Dewiner Schnitzel and Pizza Hut. So uh, making a dollar an hour, you know, I didn't really do anything else. Why did you get your license so early? Did you know what you wanted to do? No, my mother was a realtor since 1961, and she saw that the uh, regulations and rules to get a real estate license were changing rapidly. So she encouraged me to get a real estate license at a very early age. And, um, you know, at that time, you didn't have to take any classes. You just applied and took a test. And that's all I did to get a real estate license. Did you go into real estate right out of high school? I started selling real estate in high school and uh, actually sold a couple of houses to my high school teachers. (laughs) That is fabulous. That is fantastic. Wow. So this is an oddball question, but you were 17 in Texas, are you still considered a minor? Could you sign a contract at 17? 
Yes, at that time, the law had a provision that if you got your disability of minority removed, uh, which was a minimal legal procedure, you could uh, apply for a real estate license under the age of 18. So it was a simple procedure, and the juvenile court judge, all he ever listened to in those days were juveniles who got into trouble. So when I came up with my wanting to do something with my life at 17, he was like, where do I sign? And he's approved the removal and approved that. Now in Texas, you do have to be at least 18 years old. They've removed that provision. Wow, that's amazing. Well, Sam, so we're going back quite a few years. How many years have you been in real estate? January will mark my 40th year. This may be odd because we're going back so far, but when you got started, do you think you had a fast start or a slow start? In my first month in real estate, I made $800 in three closings. And let me tell you, now that was 1975. And for a kid to have $800 in a month in 1975, I was rich. So I got off to a pretty quick start. People were, you know, amused at my youth in, uh, in selling houses, and it sort of attracted them in a strange way. You said your mom had her license, so did your mom mentor you for the first few years? Sort of. Yes, she did. She, she did more than mentor me, uh, or rather than mentor me, I should say, she pushed me. So she was a very domineering type person with a an undiagnosed bipolar disorder, and um, she was a very pushy, demanding uh, type individual who's, um, you know, uh, pushed me into this business because I was always the overweight kid, and uh, she was afraid I wouldn't be able to succeed in the corporate world, so I needed to be entrepreneurial, and so she pushed me in that direction. Well, Sam, you've been doing this for 39 years. How many homes did you sell last year? 286 in 2013. And do you recall the sales volume? Oh, I think it was about 29 million or so. And, uh, you know, we had a lot of foreclosure distress sales in that year, so our, our average price per sale went down. And so we were working just a completely uh, variety market last year, as we were. Last year seemed to be a good recovery year in the Houston market. When was your best year? How many homes did you sell? And what was your sales volume? Yes, the best year was 2006. And our, our sales volume was a little bit over $40 million. And um, that represented uh, 221 total closed transactions that year. Sam, I was talking to you right before the call. You mentioned something that really struck me. When you sold those 221 homes, what did your team consist of? Who was on your team? I had admin people only at that time. So I did the, the customer interaction work myself. And I was killing myself. I was overworked. You know, it's funny. This year I do... Uh, probably near this volume this year and less transactions, and I rarely meet a buyer or seller anymore. I've leveraged myself where I really don't do that function any longer. That's really impressive. So back there in 2006, you said you had a, a staff, what was it, two people, two assistants helping you? That's correct. Yes, that's right. 
Wow, you were must have been really running. Yes, we were. We were picking it up and putting them down. You know, no doubt about it. it was a, I was a pretty busy guy. You know, I was always a very hard-working individual. You know, back before 2003, when I was just running around, I I mentioned the uh, the domineering mother and uh, the, being the chubby kid. I was a 400-pound man most of those years, and in 2003. I had gastric bypass surgery and lost 225 pounds, and my energy level just went through the roof to that, and that's when I really ex- excelled to another level, being thin and working from way before sunup to way past sundown seven days a week. And I, I loved it because I had so much energy. After losing 200 pounds, you know, I really was just, I couldn't be stopped. And that was really the secret to why that happened. Well, Sam, you've been doing this now 39, almost 40 years. How many homes have you sold in your career? Oh, we're approaching the 9,000 mark. And, um, you know, I don't know how many, I don't know the total dollar volume. I haven't recorded all those years. I've kept track of the numbers. I was always uh, unit-based. My mother pushed that on me, to base it on the, the units. Don't look at the dollars. Look at the units, because you'll, you'll always do well if you've got the units. And um, so, you know, I, I listen to a lot of different coaches. I'm really in a, a collection of, of all the different coaches. I didn't make up too many things. I listen and learn from lots of other people in my career, but I followed that unit-based approach most of my career. I still do that. Well, Sam, we have listeners all over the world. Could you please tell us, where is Houston, Texas? Oh, my goodness. If you don't know where Houston, Texas is, you're probably not in the U.S. of A. Houston is right down uh, in the southern part of Texas, uh, not too far from Mexico, from the border of Mexico. And um, I live on the, I actually live in a little suburb on the south side of Houston called Pearland, Texas. And my office is just north of the Pearland-Houston line in the Houston side of, of, the, uh, of the divider. And it's one of the largest uh, cities in the, in the country. Right. And what's, what do you, what's the population there in Houston? Oh, my goodness. I wish I knew offhand. I don't know. I, I know it's a... Uh, it's growing by leaps and bounds. I've been, uh, you know, the, the, the problem we're having in Houston is there's such an, a move for the oil and gas industry here and uh, that we're, our inventory is at record lows. Most of the markets I work in have two-month inventories. So it's just a challenge on that side of it. But it is growing by leaps and bounds. People are dying for rentals. It's pushing rental values up and finally pushing prices up. Interesting about the Houston market, it's always been undervalued since the failure of the thrifts of the S&Ls back in the 80s. Prices went down and they never really fully recovered. So we're undervalued as compared to most of the rest of the country considering the amenities and the jobs and uh, the population here. Are you working the entire metro Houston market or are you uh, specializing in one part of that market? Well, if I go back to 2006 when I was number one, I used to specialize just in the little city of Pearland. But what's happened, one of the biggest changes I've seen is that uh, you can no longer do that. 
if you work in Houston, I have most many of my customers want to sell in Pearland and move to the Woodlands, which is the far, about an hour and a half drive north of here, but still part of the Houston market. So Houston encompasses seven counties. It's a giant, spread out, sprawling area. It's one of the few places I know of where you can drive for two hours and still be in Houston. So we have to work a seven-county market nowadays. That is a big change for us. So the local real estate office where you, you, you plant an office in this area and you work within a, you know, a three-mile radius of that or whatever it is, that's just no longer appropriate. Agents are far more mobile and offices have to accommodate themselves to attract and deal with mobile agents and the mobility of our, of our staff. Something else that's unique about Houston, if I recall, you could tell me if this is uh, if it was ever true or still true, but I had heard that the zoning for building is very loose, very open, so that uh, you can build pretty much anything anywhere. Was that true in the past, and is that still true? Well, sort of. Uh, Houston does not have zoning. And there was a time they tried to pass some zoning, but uh, it didn't make it through, so Houston has no zoning. However, we have a very regulatory city control over building and development so that it is controlled by city government now rather than by zoning ordinances. But, yes, and and we have deed restrictions, but after 25 years, if those deed restrictions are not renewed, the use of the land can change. So you see uh, a lot of businesses turn out of uh, residential neighborhoods, turn into commercial establishment areas. There's a lot of those pockets around town. Some of them now have added historical districts to try to protect the integrity of those neighborhoods where businesses moved in and they became slums. Now they're redeveloping or becoming, like I say, these historical districts to have some sort of regulatory control over the uh, redevelopment or reuse of the land. Sam, can you please describe your current real estate market? Where I'm working in my my specialty is I don't. I'm really not a luxury home specialist, though I take a few luxury listings depending on the market. But I, I work in a very average, median market price range. I think our average price range so far this year has been about two hundred and twenty thousand, in a market where the median home is somewhere closer to the three hundred thousand dollar range. So you know we're near that those numbers. My specialty is I only focus on single-family residential homes. I mean, my personal mission is to help people. I help other realtors, and I help buyers and sellers learn to grow their personal wealth through owning single-family residential rental properties and single-family residential living units as well. Sam, do you have a niche or a specialization in your market? For a long time, I was known as Pearland Sam. When the Internet first came along, I branded myself as Pearland Sam because no one could spell my last name, and that became my persona. Well, as Pearland grew and our market in Houston grew, I had to rebrand myself as just the samteam.com to uh, get away from the image that I only worked in Pearland. My office is in Houston, and I do live in Pearland, but I didn't want to be limited by one small area. So uh, fortunately, my office having the Houston address rather than a Pearland address has allowed us to not be limited by being in a small town. Pearland never had the you know any kind of glamorous image around the marketplace, so that was a, a limiting condition. And uh, I've noticed uh, real estate offices that have the, the name like uh, with the, a, a locational 
name uh, spot in their name are limited to those locations because there's markets around town that would uh, they they go to work every day just so they would never have to live in Pearland. So I mean I have to consider that and. Uh, so I don't specialize in one particular area or the other, although many people still associate me as Pearland Sam. If I understand correctly, you still get the majority of your business from geographic farming. Is that true? Yes, that's absolutely correct. I built my business on two things I believe are the most crucial points of marketing that I've been saying for the last 15 years. Direct mail and Internet. Direct mail and Internet. People ask me, what should I be doing? And I tell them direct mail and Internet. I, I add into that nowadays the telephone because telephone calling, we got away from that for so long because of the do not call list, and agents use that as an excuse to not make calls. I did too, but the phone is a very effective tool, and so what you've got to do now is learn how to use it and work within the parameters of the do not call. But I find it's only about 30% of any neighborhood is protected or on a do-not-call list. So that leaves 70% of consumers who are not on that do-not-call list. And so we need to focus on those. And that is an effective part of using the business. Many agents don't like to uh, use the telephone. It makes them work outside their comfort zone, but it certainly is an effective tool. Well, Sam, I want to talk about your, your geographic farm. I want to dig into that for a few minutes. First of all, how did you pick your geographic farm? It depends on where you are in your career as to how you pick a geographic farm. But first of all, you want to look for a community that has a no less than 6% turnover rate. Now, these are, I used to say 10%, but I've had to lower that standard because uh, if I were sitting here with you in 2005 and 2006, we knew that the average homeowner planned to stay five to seven years. Today, it's 15 years. So that turnover rate is reducing itself, leading again to the inventory shortage because people are buying to stay put for 15 years. That's a very interesting uh, change in the market as well. So you have to kind of expand your territory and not be limited or you, you just cut yourself in half. That's half the turnover rate. So you have to find farm territories that have 6 to 10% turnover rates historically. And many of those are brand-new communities where people get in. There's always turnover in those first few years. But then some communities around me that were my primary markets have stagnated where there haven't been sales. I mean, if, if a house comes on the market, you get five offers in the first week. And uh, so trying to get listings in those neighborhoods is you're wasting your time. So moving that money around, we've had to shift markets that we've geographically farmed and uh, redirect those to those neighborhoods that have that 6 to 10% uh, turnover rate. When you go out to pick a farm, you mentioned turnover rate. Is there anything else you're looking at? Are you looking at type of homes, an average price? Is it geographically close to your office? What other factors are you using to determine where you'll geographic farm? The only other thing we look at is if the homes, the typical homes in that community are easier to sell than other homes. For example, homes built in the early 90s, unless they've been updated, you can't hardly sell them in our world out here. I mean, I can go out here to the hottest neighborhood, but if it has uh, still brass fixtures and wallpaper and, and uh, Formica countertops, we can't sell it. Nobody wants it. They want homes that are updated the wallpaper gone, the, the countertops replaced, and the fixtures changed. 
so I have to look to see if a neighborhood has those things or is a newer community that came with uh, different upgrades that would be more suitable. And uh, that's my test because I have to know what's saleable. And um, because otherwise we spend an awful lot of time with people who don't sometimes have the money or don't have any desire to do the remodeling. Or in those cases where we do get those listings, we spend a lot of time helping them pick the fixtures, get contractors, you know, doing the remodels because you just can't sell them the otherwise. That that adds to our uh, our workload. So we, we try to pick neighborhoods where that's not the case. How big is your farm? How many homes do you mail out to? About 40,000. 40,000. That's, that's impressive. That is a large farm. Have you always had the farm that big, 40,000, or have you been adding to it? And if so, how many do you add at a time? We add to it. That's our budget. That's what we budgeted into our allowance, but we moved them. In fact, this year, we've, re- we've taken some neighborhoods that we totally unfarmed and uh, moved that money in that direction into different neighborhoods. It's been an effective strategy for us. But to, to get those out there, we've used a variety of techniques. We've used you know, um, uh, marriage mail techniques where the, the, the postcards that go along with it are cheaper to print distribute because they're uh, married with a magazine or something like that. Those are nowhere near as effective as when we design and print our own cards that say exactly what we want to say and we send them exactly where we want them to go. So much of my team in their off time, we print and mail our own postcards. We don't hire that out. We did hire that out for a while. That became highly ineffective. And if I go back in my career to when we were the most effective with farming, it was when we printed a mail. So we started doing it again, and lo and behold, that's the most effective thing again that we found. It's interesting how we're seeing a lot of things, actually, that we did you know, 30 years ago are recycling to be very popular and uh, effective again today. You're printing and mailing your own cards well, first of all, I assume that means you're you're using postcards, number one. And number two, are you sending that out by first-class mail, bulk mail, every-door direct mail? Two questions there. Are you sending postcards, and how are you sending them out? Well, I'll tell you. I've used everything. I've done bulk mail. I've done EBDM. I've done the marriage mail. I've done those uh, envelopes with postcards in them. And the best strategy that works best today is first-class postage on postcards. So we print postcards that will mail at the 34-cent postcard rate, and that's where our money is spent. What do you have to do to meet that requirement to mail at 34 cents? Does the card have to be a certain size? Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure exactly what size it has to be, but I know that our size works. And so what we use is a 4-up on an 8.5 by 11, so you're printing 4 at a time. You can buy those online, you know, just blank cards of all colors, and they're perforated. So you run them through the printer and then tear them in fours, and so your printing cost is four to one. And um, then we run them through a postage meter, and it's really quick and easy. And we keep our mailing lists internal so that with using first-class mail, you get your return mail, so you can update your mailing list as you need to. If you're using EDDM or those others, you know, you don't get any return. You don't know vacant properties and things like that. It seems to me that to have somebody in your office print out and rip apart and 
and stamp and mail 40,000 pieces. It, it, it sounds like you'd need 10 people to do that. <laughs> How long does it take to do that each month? Now, it's a daily job. It's part of our task list. We mail every day. So it's not like because of bulk mail, you have to mail all at one time. With this, you do not. The other thing that I did, how I learned this, and I'll tell you, I go back a long ways when I was flat broke. And uh, so I, I mailed according to my budget. And with this, you control how many you mail each day based on how much money you can, how much money you can afford to buy cards and stamps and ink for your printer. And uh, my first, the first assistant, the first admin person I hired, his whole job was to sit and print and mail postcards. In the old days, when a, a laser, uh, an inkjet printer was brand new, color printing was brand new, and uh, it, it, they printed, we had a high-speed one that was about a 1000 bucks. It printed like 10 pages a minute. <laughs> and so his job was to sit and print those things out and then put the labels on them and perforate them. Well, we can do that. It's very quick now with today's technology and a much better improvement. But I, I've gone back to that technique because I will tell you, after I did that for a while, then I graduated to hiring someone to do it. Then it went out by bulk mail. Then it went out by EDDM. And all I was doing was writing a check, giving them the design, and out it went. Our effectiveness dropped drastically. Once I re-implemented this old system I, and how it worked, I was digging through some stuff. You know how you have boxes of crap that have been piled in your back room for years that you don't even know what it is. I'm digging through, cleaning out stuff. And I found a couple of boxes of those old four-up postcards. And I went, you know, I've got these damn things. Let's try this. And by golly, didn't that work again? So it became our, you know, our, our new method, our new old methodology. I had completely forgotten how good that was. And then when I just started hiring it and everything's glossy and slick, and you gotta, you got to analyze your mailbox habits. Think about your mailbox, you know. If all those glossy postcards, you must get 20 every day. You quickly weed through those. But this one, I mean, small, and you can tell I printed it, and it has first-class postage on it. You look at it. So I was stuck on the number, and I kind of crunched it in my head. So it sounds to me like you're mailing out maybe 2,000 postcards per day. Does that sound about right? Something like that, which is really, remember, that's only 500 sheets. How long is that taking your staff to do? It doesn't take them very long. I really, I see them, you know, they're on it. They have a weekly goal. And, uh, you know, when they're not doing anything and, you know, and things slow down, if they've got a stack of labels and they're labeling on one side, another guy whose job is to go put them in the postage. I mean, we've got a meter that's a, an automatic feed to put the postage on it. So it's simple. In the old days, we used stamps. We licked stamps. I had one of those little sponges, you know, where you, <laughs> you had the wet stamp and put on there. But now, gosh, it's so much easier and quicker. You can run it through that machine. It, it really doesn't take very long at all. You said you're putting a sticky label on it? Yes. Uh-huh. Because none of us, it, it, let me tell you, the hardest thing about that, I, I have them in an Excel format. If I could figure out how to mail merge onto a four-up my eight and a half by 11, my, uh, everybody, everybody wants to do, we all want to do that. Nobody can figure that out. That is not easy because our printer uh, is tied in with, with our computers. So theoretically you could do it, but I need somebody who's smarter than I am to figure that out or smarter than anybody on my team. So we just went to labor. 
I want to talk about the postcard itself and what it looks like. You said it doesn't look like all the other glossy cards in the in the postal box that people receive. So what does this card look like? It's a little white card. And take an eight and a half piece of paper in your hand, eight and a half by eleven, a basic piece of copy paper, and fold it in fourths. And that's what it looks like. And on one side it says Remax Top Realty the Sand Team. The other side, it has a little message. Now is the time. Time to get yours sold. Call Sam and get sold. Whatever my, we're saying at that point. And then we direct them to an internet site that will help them get the free market value instantly on your home or whatever. We got a, a, a series of them. And we run through those series and we repeat them over and over. On one side, it's just like the return address, just a place for the label and the stamp. So it's very simplistic. Yeah, well, we have our team logo on that side, on the mailer side, along with a, you know, our phone number and website. And then the other side has a little brief message. Sounds like the main message is get a, a free market evaluation. Yeah, well, you know, free market evaluation is so trite. We don't use that. We say, how much could you sell your house for? Find out now. You know, one of our other favorite lines, and I got this from some coach, I don't even remember which one, no salesman will call. Visit this website. What other headlines have you used in that series that are working well? How much could you sell your home for? Thinking of selling. Now is the time. Basic, simple. Remember, they've got to be very simple, very quick to read with your message appealing to them right then, instantly. And then I put on everything, call Sam, get sold. And I stole that from a local plumber, John Moore Plumbing. He has on his his slogan, and he has radio ads everywhere, call John and get more. And I thought, well, hell, call Sam and get sold. (laughs) So it stuck. On that postcard, is it just text, or do you use pictures too, photographs? Oh, we put pictures on there. Sometimes we'll put a pictures of, of three houses we sold in three days and just stamp them sold in three days. You know, because if we get them in a certain neighborhood, that does happen. We don't put the address or any data, just a picture of the house and then stamp across it in red, sold in three days, sold in seven days. Call Sam, get sold. You're giving them the opportunity to connect with you by calling on the phone, going to your website and getting a free CMA, free market evaluation. Any other call to actions on that card? No, that's it. I mean, you can email me, you can call me, or go to a website where you can get instant information. In fact, you know, um, we prefer, believe it or not, my team prefers email leads of all kinds. We want people to go to the website and contact us from there. We don't really like, we don't do well with call-in leads. Call-in leads are not our biggest source. They're problematic. We also don't want any clients who don't have email capability. Every once in a while, there's one out there. We can't service them. We know that. On our billboards and car signs, we don't even put our phone number up. It's all about our website. We want people to go online. Everything's got to be interactive because that's the two-touch. The phone call number, they're not going to remember. We want them to remember that website. TheSandTeam.com hairlandsand.com in certain cases. Sam, you're mailing out these 40,000 cards per month. 
what are you getting back? How many how many people call back in each month on average? How many leads are you getting from that effort? We average two listings per week, but many weeks we're getting four and five. Plus some uh, still some dis- that doesn't count our distress sale properties that we still get. There's still some of that market out there, but um, you know the the cost is so minimal that. The uh, the payback is simple. It's simple, man. So we'll run that real quick. So you said thirty four cents or so, and you also had to print the card up. So I'm not sure. What do you think your budget is per month to do those cards? Maybe fifteen thousand a month or so, or twenty thousand. What what's your monthly? It's about fifteen thousand dollars. Okay, and then you're getting about eight listings that are coming in on average per month from the 15000 investment? Actually, I'll back up and say we're probably getting about 10 per month. It'll be about 120 from that this year because that's our primary source. And then the buyer leads that come from those are immeasurable. We get the move up. But we, that's another one we do is move up with Sam. So we target periodically the people in some of the the uh, beginner neighborhoods, and it may be time to sell and buy bigger. So we target the, the double deal. So it sounds to me, if I just do some quick math, you're probably getting each listing for an acquisition cost of about $1,500. Does that sound correct? That's probably right. And our average commission is 6015 it's basically about 25% of your overall listing commission. Right. Good. And so that's something that you can really ramp up, which is what you've done, because you know your numbers. Absolutely. And the other side of that is that, uh, you know, that's why we don't really, we don't take reload business at all. Those 40% deals don't pay us. We, we end up working for the reload company. We, we pass those on. We can't do those. Anything, you know, we'll take referrals from other agents. We love those at 25%. But these guys that call and want us, want us to give them 30 to 40%, we just can't, we can't work in those numbers. we got too big a team, too much cost going in to, to make that happen, make that realistic. Sam, you mentioned that you, you reevaluate where your best target market is and you'll shift neighborhoods that you're melling in and out of. How often do you make that reevaluation? Are you doing that once a year? No, about every six months. We run a rolling three average for every neighborhood that we mark to, and we keep track of what the, the numbers are in those neighborhoods. If we see after six months that it's not producing the return we expect, and we switch the money around. And uh, this year, actually, we did that a little more often than we than, than in past years because it is the market is shifting drastically and we had to get out we can't spend that kind of money in a neighborhood where there's no turnover rates and that is becoming the biggest challenge to using this so we had to go find neighborhoods that really we hadn't worked in before and uh, you know it doesn't matter to me where it is it's just got to meet those uh, criteria I don't want to sit here if I were it, it, that was a mistake I made early on let me tell you what I did I did the blanket to West Pearland. That was my area. And I didn't really have a, a follow-up system for my past customers and clients. I thought, well, my postcards, because they'll blanket all these people, will keep be my in-touch system for the future. 
so people, we'd sell their house in this neighborhood, move them over to that neighborhood, and they all stayed in West Pearland. Well, that started changing, and I started losing my customer base. And I had to redirect that marketing font, and I had to add the, the, the methodologies to keep up with past customers and clients. And actually, by you making me go back and look in my old systems, I've had a brilliant idea for going back, how I can go back to some of these customers that we lost track of. I found this data, and it looks like it might be something we could uh, we could certainly market to, even if we don't know who lives there today. <laughs> That's great. Giving some great ideas, Mike, and making me look up 2006 information. I, I'm glad I could help. So this is this is great. So I understand what you said. You said that. In the past, you moved people around the same city, the same area, Pearland, and so you felt you were covering them by doing your blanket direct mail marketing. By the way, I've made that same uh, decision in the past. Then you noticed that people were moving out of your area and that you were losing track of your past clients, and you start to make a shift. Yeah, what a mistake. What a mistake. Yeah, no doubt with 8,500, 9,000 past clients. Wow. How many people – well, we're going to talk about your past client database in a little bit and, and that shift. But boy uh, – well, let me, let me do this though. Let me finish out the farming because you've got a, a really awesome geographic farming program going. And I want to make sure we, we answer all the questions here first. So you talked about the size of your farm and that you, you're constantly adapting it and moving to new areas. Do you contact your farm in any way other than the postcard? No, I've tried using um, mojo cells and calling everybody, just blanket calling them. And what would happen? I'm great at doing that personally. And I'd get people on the phone that wanted to chat. They hadn't talked to me in years. And it just took so much time that it wasn't worth it. So, you know, we do have some email uh, follow-up. We did, we made mistakes by not tracking everybody's email address in the past and allowing them to unsubscribe. So we've, we've changed that strategy in the last couple of years. But I lost some of that at a point, which was, uh, you know, a mistake I'd made in those early years. But staying up with them, direct mail seems to be my favorite way. And, you know, I seem to attract people on my team that are like that. You know, the sitting there, the cold calling and all, I train and coach agents on that because I was always very good at it. But, you know, most people really don't want to do that. So if you don't want to do it and it punishes you, why do it? Find the things. I, I coach agents in finding the, you know, here's a million things you could do. Find the five to seven things that you like doing. And if you put them on your weekly or daily activity list and after a week you don't do them, take them off. Because you'll keep punishing yourself thinking, I ought to be calling FISBOs. Well, if you hate calling FISBOs, then don't do it. Otherwise, 40 years later, I, I, I wouldn't be able to get up and come to work each day if I have kept doing things that I hated. It's got to be things that you like doing. Well, I like doing postcards and design and seeing how many people will call me. I prefer people calling me and say, Sam, I want to sell my home. I've been getting your postcards for years. Please come list my home. That's what I want, and that's what I seek. I don't want to call them and beg them to list with me because they've been listed by for sale by owner. I know how to do that, but I don't like it, and I don't want to do it. I want them to call me and say, hey, you're the man. Come list my house. So I build, I work on that. I build what I want and, and go for it. 
So you've designed a system, a marketing plan, a business plan around your preference for how you like to generate business. That's exactly correct. And that's what I coach agents on. My, my main job now, I also own this company and I, I work with a lot of brand new agents and I tell them, find your bliss in this business. Otherwise, it is work. You've got to turn it from being work into something you like to do. Find your bliss. Yeah, find your bliss, because otherwise it will be your nightmare. How many people get into this business and get out? I mean, we're swelling. Right now, a few years ago, we were down in the Houston Association of Realtors. We were down to like 16,000 members. Today, we're pushing toward 40,000 members, and the real estate schools are full, because everybody's heard the Houston market is hot. So, you know, it goes up and down like that. They'll get in here, get burnt out, and uh, weasel back into working at IHOP or something. So you got to find something you like doing that you're good at and that people respond to. Key thing. Everybody, it's different for everybody. On the postcard, are you sending one postcard to one house per month? Oh, no. Uh, we repeat the same neighborhoods twice a month. So each house is getting two postcards per month or 24 per year? Yeah, we got to touch them at least twice a month. And I'll go back to my headings on postcards. We don't send anything like um, recipe cards or anything like that. Everything I send is extremely direct. I use direct approaches. I learned direct approaches when I was uh, early on in my career. I found them to be the most effective. I don't want to just sit there and keep sending my picture with a recipe of the month or something. I don't think those two go together. Everything is, are you ready to sell? Then call me that kind of message. So Sam, if, if I'm, uh, I'm crunching this through my head here, so do you have a, a total database you're marking to for houses for the direct mail? Is that 20,000 homes that you're going to twice a month and therefore 40,000 total cards? Or is it 40,000 homes that you're sending out 80,000 pieces a month? I'm sorry, that is a tiny bit misleading because what we, what we do for our second uh, approach and there's about four neighborhoods that are our big markets out here, and we have secured the back covers of their um, their homeowner association newsletters. Very inexpensive marketing approach, and that is our second touch in those neighborhoods. The rest of them are concentrated on neighborhoods where we don't have that option. And I'll be darned if I have the exact numbers in front of me. But we, we do use those newsletters in those four big markets as our second touch that month. Okay. So you're sending out 40,000 cards, but your households are probably somewhere in the twenty-five to 30,000 range. 30,000. Yeah, it's probably 30,000 if I really thought about it. And interestingly, though, those markets are not bringing the return as the ones where we send the two postcards. I got to make a confession. When you started describing the postcard, I wrote down ugly postcard, ugly postcard. Yeah. And that's actually a compliment because a lot of marketers use ugly ads that work twice as effective as a pretty ad. And it sounds to me like that's what you're implementing in your direct mail. Yes, because it looks like I did it and it looks like something you'd pick out of the crowd. Not those real pretty glossy cards. No, that's right. 
you know, I remember years back marketing a, a little property I had for sale over in the worst neighborhood. I mean, just a terrible dump of a property. And I'm trying to put in here, you know, investor special, come make this your show place and all that. Nothing, nothing. Finally, I put an ad in the paper back when ads in the paper worked. This is a long time ago. And I put beat up and ugly. This dump is a giant piece of crap. I had <laughs> probably a thousand calls, couldn't feel the call. And I had, um, you know, like five offers, went over the list price, that sort of thing in a market where the, it, the worst looking thing you've ever seen in your life. I endeared those people. They became, once I sold that for them and got them out of that headache, they became clients for life that I still talk to. And uh, so that just uh, shows to, uh, goes to show you that, uh, you know, sometimes using a reverse approach can be the most effective. But every agent's out there sending out postcards. They're calling these, they're sending out magnet calendars and they're doing the same things. Mine is not. On these postcards, have you branded yourself with anything other than your logo is your picture on it or are you doing anything else other than the logo for branding well yes i created a photo logo many many years ago okay back 20 years ago when photo you know computers were new and photo logos were new i paid a company i still have this original disc sitting right here what was the name of this company i know they're no longer in business but was called Image Builder Advertising out of Chandler, Arizona. And what, for $1,500, you could send them your image, your pictures, and they would take it and make a logo out of it. Now you can go to Fiverr.com you know, and get a logo made for 5 bucks. But this was $1,500, and they send you all these varieties. Well, I went over to Glamour Shots and got a picture of myself. I was pointing at a backdrop of the Houston skyline, so my arms were spread. Well... They cut me that backdrop out and put put it over my name with this the future of real estate and an arrow. And I used that picture with me standing with my arms spread apart. I'm 400 pounds in this image. And I sent that out. People knew me far and wide because of that image by using a custom logo. So in 2003, when I had the weight loss, I had to take that and I had to go take new pictures and try to copy that same stand with my arms spread apart like that. So I really had some photography work done and had the logo redeveloped with that new image. And I put them on a postcard and wrote, half the man, twice the realtor. After a 225-pound weight loss, let me tell you that to this day, people around the country remember that postcard. They still know me to this day from that that very postcard, half the man, twice the realtor. I still get calls from people asking me about how I did it. And, uh, you know, telling me, so I've updated that a few times. I've changed the logo a little bit. Now I took out my name and where it used to say Sam Ferrari, it now says Sam Team. And uh, it's still my image on there, but I could be dead and they could still be using the Sam Team logo. So it's, it's our logo like that. And we've played around with it in a variety of ways. We put Remax balloons on it and you know, then I have company logos that we merge the two together because the, the, the concept is, what I try to tell agents, you've got two parts. When you go on a listing presentation, my whole business is structured around going for listings. When you go on a listing presentation, half of it is selling your company, the other half is selling you. So you've got to co-brand the two. You've got to give yourself, I see these agents trying to make themselves look grand and you, you, you look over their advertising everywhere, you can't figure out what company they're with. That's a giant mistake. 
because it has to be 50-50. And you have to go in and, and, uh, and create the co-branded approach. So you have to use good, good images with that and make sure that people understand who you are and who you're with. So that's clear in all of my, in all of my postcards. Are you branding yourself to an area? So, for instance, are some of the postcards, do they say the Pearland specialist, or are they more generic in that they all look alike and they're going out to the, the, the 40,000 cards are all going out all over the place? Well, we tried genericizing them, and we decided to quit branding as PearlandSamTeam.com and go with just TheSamTeam.com. We lost some Pearland market as a result of it. So it was a mistake. So we've put that back into our marketing that goes into Pearland, the Pearland Sam Team image. And the I mean, it's the same image, just we put Pearland Sam Team in the website to remind people that I'm still Pearland Sam. So we now brand two ways. It's the samteam.com in Houston market and PearlandSam.com in Pearland. So you do have two slightly different versions of your postcard, and it's coming down to this photo logo and the fact that you're using Pearland Sam versus the Sam team. That's right. In everything that says Pearland Sam though on it, somewhere it does say the Sam team to tie the two together. But in Pearland, we do add the PearlandSam.com. I mean, years and years we spent marketing that. Why did we give that up? I, I don't know. I don't remember why I decided to do that sometime back. It was a mistake. I've gotten to the end of my questions on geographic farming. If somebody was listening to us out there and wanted to either start or expand their geographic farm, do you have any advice for them? Anything we haven't talked about they should be thinking about? Absolutely. The steps are first develop your budget. How much can you spend? And then you have to go back and uh, look at the two most critical parts of marketing. You know, it's not just advert. This was an advertising gimmick of the old days, or the way you advertise. But it's not just advertising; it's everything you do, and that is reach and frequency. And those two terms are reach is how many people can you touch, frequency is how often. And the most important thing to remember is that frequency is far more important than reach. So get it to two to three times. If you're brand new, it needs to be two to three times per month. That's been proven over and over again by all sorts of postcard marketers. So cut your farm down to get it in your budget. It'd be better to do 500 pieces twice a month to the same people than it would be to hit hit 1,000 homes once a month. Far better. Reach and frequency. You've got to balance those two, but frequency being more important than reach. Now, with social media, you can add your, your areas and hit them a lot more inexpensively and hit your frequency up a little bit by using things like social media and, you know, I don't know if you use grocery cart advertising or billboards, but you've got to have the farming first. You don't want to go put grocery carts and billboards up until you've got a market share established. So that's a giant mistake agents make. They go by, spend thousands of dollars on a billboard or a, on grocery carts, and yet they have no market share. They think that's going to be their solution or a magazine ad to getting business. It isn't. You've got to build it one by one first and then go there. So think reach and frequency. Get your budget. Pick your area. Think. Remember the 6 to 10% turnover rate and then go to town. 
let's talk about your past clients. I know you're you're getting a lot of business out of your past clients. I think it's upwards of thirty percent for past clients and sphere of influence and referrals. So let's dive into that. First of all, how big is your database of past clients and sphere of influence? Well, my database is mixed with past clients and current clients and prospects. And um, it's a total of about 12,000 names and numbers and email addresses currently. We've broken them down. I think I have 5,500 active of those are buyer leads. About 1,000 of them are seller leads, and the rest are past clients and uh, customers. So you're looking at somewhere around about 5,500 past clients in sphere of influence. Does that sound about right? Something like that, but I will tell you, it's probably not quite that high. You know, our database is a tiny bit convoluted and got out of control. So a couple of years ago, we started figuring out we had to do something with our database. It was interesting. I was at a convention this past weekend listening to someone talk about getting your, your you know, a, a contact relationship manager, a CRM, up to date and in place. And I, I kind of laughed about that. It's like that has been a challenge for us because it wasn't so important when they first came out. It's extremely important today. And I didn't really keep up with it like I should have back in the day. I kept up with leads, and then when we closed them, we didn't focus on them as much as we should have. So it is a giant mammoth effort to go back when you're working with a team now to go back and try to remember everybody and look at your notes. So we've used a different approach to try to categorize them. When you've got a database that large and you've forgotten everything and you don't remember who's who, it is a challenge. And um, so what we've what we've learned and uh, is that we probably have to use five different databases. And we have to have databases that will track opens and track what they click, track what they read, so that we begin to categorize them into what they're looking for, looking at, or what they're interested in. From there, then we can put them into the appropriate database that targets people who are looking in that particular area or for that sort of thing, or they're thinking of selling, or what they're interested in. And so we start to categorize them in a whole different way than a traditional approach and just staying up with them and sending them newsletters and things. We want to send them relevant information. Otherwise, people discard your emails. And we, we've, we've gone on email campaigns for years. We were the first to embrace drip campaigns and things. Those just don't work. You have to have relevant information that go to people who want what you have. And so first of all, you've got to figure out what it is they want and then give them what they want. That's some of the new technology that can really give you some great insight on that information because it shows you you can build in links into your email uh, campaigns that, that they click, and then you can track who clicks this based on that, and you can categorize different things and target different groups. And then once, they, once you've got, let's say, 100 people clicked on this link that we're talking about what the market is doing, then you can update those people with market reports. And you've got another group that's looking in this particular neighborhood that you had 25 people who looked at this listing that you sent out. So start to target them in those listings. And it becomes very detailed in how you can then do your follow-ups with uh, your ongoing databases. Who's looking? Keeping them hot. So we, we, we look at several different databases. The other thing about that is, if I'm just using one database, 
all my emails start to look alike. And so when you're opening your inbox and you can quickly go through, it's much easier to delete the ones that look the same every time. Just the same way with postcards. Throw away all the ones that look alike. You use five different databases. You're mixing it up, and your emails come looking differently each time. And it kind of throws people's memories off, and they're more likely to open and read those emails. And if you send the same thing from the same place every time you send something out. That's some of the newest technology we've been to incorporate, and it seems to be having a greater effect in getting, uh, in getting toward the conversions. Just to step back for a minute, it sounds like the main way that you're staying in touch with your past clients and sphere of influence is through email. Are you contacting them any other way other than email? Oh, every once in a while we get on a bender and think we'll start calling everybody and writing personal notes and we listen to all that and we just, you know, it falls off the track. Uh, our team gets real busy and there's, that is very time consuming. So no, we don't. We end up finding the ways to reach mass numbers of people in the shortest length of time possible. And that's been email for, for your past clients and sphere of influence. We've always used a lot of video. I know there's these new systems like BombBomb that are out now that have video, uh, uh, making very easy. That's kind of handy. It's technologically challenged, but you know, we we created video years ago. We've had, always had a full-time videographer here at our company, and uh, so it's easy for us to make a nice, professionally produced video and blast it out. Are the majority of your emails that you send out are they video based? Not the majority, but a, a large number of them are. You're sending out both a text message as well as a, a video message with a click. You said BombBomb. Are you using any other service to do that? Well, we do our um, our videos in BombBomb. We also use our our basic uh, database manager, which is the uh, Remax Lead Street system. I got early onto that system and became known as Lead Street Sam because I developed it into a really deep level and actually traveled around the country training REMAX agents on how to use Lead Street. In fact, that's where you met Jennifer King out in Pennsylvania. That's where, well, we actually met at a, in, a, in Canada at a Richard Robbins event that she became a Lead Street guru as out in her market. From learning these techniques, we learned to apply with that system. Now, a quick word from our sponsor, Real GTV, real estate agent lead generation television where top agents reveal exactly how they create consistent flows of home buyer and home seller leads into their practices every month. Need more leads? Hit the pause button right now. Open Google and search RealGTV. That's R-E-A-L-G dot TV. Now, back to the show. I like how you're using your email to interact with the people. I'm trying to, there's a term for it and it's, it's on the tip of my tongue. For You've taken your marketing and you're basing it off the actions taken by the prospect. If the prospect clicks the link, they're obviously interested in that. And I'm assuming that means you're going to move the lead into a follow-up system that talks a lot about that particular topic. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. So one person theoretically could be in four or five topics. If over a course of two months, they click two different, three different things, they could be in three different categories. And so they might get emails about this and emails about that and emails about the other. And each one is going to have a completely different uh, uh, source of relevancy to whatever they were looking at. So you have multiple funnels set up 
and based on what action they take, we'll determine which funnel or which track they start to move down. Correct. How long did that take you to set up? Actually, that's very easy to do. Using some of these things like MailChimp or BombBomb, they track those, they create lists of the people who click those links. So it was just a matter of doing it a couple of times and going, hey, now you've got 80 people who clicked. Are, are you thinking of selling? Check out our marketing plan. Well, now that's 80 people that I didn't know were sellers. That's people that we need to talk to right now. Because if they got that email and they clicked that today, wouldn't you say they might be, that might be in their thought? Oh, yeah. So this is not where you'd offer any kind of free market analysis or any crap like that. You'd want something that gets them very targeted, that moves them to today business, because you really want to identify somebody who's ready, if you can. I'm just thinking out loud here, Mike. I'm thinking I might target some things for people who are thinking of selling this year or who wants to move next summer and things like that might be something to put in there just to kind of break them up a little bit. And, and create links for those people who are thinking of this or that and market projections for next summer, you know, something like that. Just thinking out loud now. <laughs> sure. You mentioned there are these multiple tracks that these past clients, these leads could go down if they're to fulfill their interest. Could you give us some of the topics for those tracks that are working for you? Some of the different topics that you're bringing people down these tracks? Certainly. Uh, it has been thinking of selling, check out our marketing plan. Uh, it has been specific listings in neighborhoods. Check out the listings in, let's say, Silver Lake and this link. Check out the listings in uh, Brunswick by clicking this link, etc. And then you can have a, a page that we've created on our website that takes you to all the current listings in that neighborhood. But if they click that, then using some of these advanced uh, uh, CRMs, it will put them into that category. So you had 85 clicks of people that looked at homes in Brunswick. Well, now I've got 85 people who've at least looked in Brunswick, so now I may want to start contacting them about what's going on in Brunswick. Here's a new listing in Brunswick. And then they may be uh, move up or move over buyers. Yes. Buyers, sellers, we don't know. But, you know, I'm just sitting here thinking of some new ways to use that. This is all cutting edge. I mean, I'm sharing with you things that are new to people even thinking about. And uh, because I was at a convention of the top 500 REMAX agents in the state of Texas, and they were talking about make sure you've got a database. And most people in there were using Outlook or Gmail or Lead Street. They had one. And I'm sitting there thinking, no, you've got to be tracking about five and then using the tracking. So I know this is ahead of what, you know, the top 500 people are doing. Probably the top 100 people weren't in that meeting, <laughs> but uh, they were probably backtracking this stuff, so I don't think I'm that far ahead, but those are definitely things that we all ought to be doing. Sam, when you say five different databases, do you mean five different groups of people in the same CRM, or do you mean five different CRMs? Five different CRMs. You know, if you're at Remax, you've got two for free. you got Lead Street and you got Design Center. Now, the Design Center one now is free, so there's two. Both are very robust. And so then you need something like MomBomb, which gives you great tracking. Uh, MailChimp, also terrific tracking. And maybe your Outlook, which doesn't give you much tracking. But those others that have tracking, you can then categorize and maybe send them in your more familiar email databases. I don't know. It's a, it's a game. It becomes sort of a, a riddle. Which one's going to open most? Which one are they going to read? Which one do they unsubscribe from? Well, if they unsubscribe from this one, they're still subscribed into the other one. 
<laughs> you know, that's what Publishers Clearinghouse does. You can't unsubscribe from them. They uns- they put you in a different, they change databases on you. You know, if I'm getting so many Publishers Clearinghouse, I unsubscribe, I don't want to play that, that game. But it's just comical to me now how many different systems they're using. So this isn't original. This isn't my idea. Others have lived before me. I just copy others' ideas. You're getting a lot of business out of the email. How How is the conversion process coming along? So you're sending out these emails, and eventually they raise their hand and say, yep, I want a, a free market analysis, or I want a list of homes, or you know, I want what you just offered. Is that how they're coming into your view, that they're ready to do something? That is a rapidly changing area, Okay. If I go back to about 2008, when we first got drip campaigns and started using them, and we were converting like crazy and uh, using drip campaigns, then everybody got smart. Who wants to get a drip campaign today? No one. Not you, not me, not our customers. Nobody wants a drip campaign. So the challenge is, how do you use a drip campaign to make it not look like a drip campaign, to make it look custom to them? There's the real challenge, because people will read custom uh, emails, but they want them the length of a text message. So two lines. You've got to keep your emails short. Not of these. You know, who wants to read a page of long email? Do you read them? Only if I'm really interested in the headline. Yeah, very un- unlikely. If you send me a, a a whole page email, I don't care what it could be. How to get a million dollars cash today? I, I'm going to delete it because I don't have time to read that. <laughs> now, if you told me. Uh, click this link to find out how to get $2 million today. Okay, I might click that link. It's got to be a, that email has to be really short and really say, dear, hey, Sam, this is for you. I mean, the Democrats taught me that. Uh, you know, I just somehow got on the Democratic mailing list. Man, I kept getting emails, personal emails from Barack Obama. And it's like, <laughs> how in the world did I get these? But okay. I did. And let me tell you, those guys are relentless, too. That's how they won those of the election, getting in the social media, getting in your face, getting very personal with you that looks personal. So I copied some of that stuff. And uh, I don't get anything from the Republicans. Not a thing. That's a big switch. So they've been very personal and get writing. And, and every day, I probably get five emails. I try to unsubscribe. I can't. They change it up. It's a very interesting concept how you can do that. And I would say I leave that to others to figure it out. How can you make them custom to you and make somebody want to open them? Um, and that's changing up those databases. It cannot keep coming from the same place because then they recognize it, they delete it. I'm always tickled by these. In the Remax system, there's a standard newsletter that comes out at once a month. You can use it for free. All these agents have it. I probably get 100 of them from different friends across the country. It's the same thing. And it's like, oh, how to make a man cave out of your garage, you know? And then it goes, who in the hell wants to read that? No one. That isn't going to make me call you when I need a realtor. It's like, here's the recipe for how to make a chocolate cake. Well, if I want to make a chocolate cake, I'm going to go to Google and search how to make a chocolate cake. I don't need your recipe card. Okay? Which is also another interesting point. You have to be able to go to Google and say, I want to know how to sell my house in Pearland. I need to pop up there. That's another interesting uh, challenge as well. Have you been able to solve that riddle? Oh, yeah. I I learned. I took a course in search engine optimization a long time ago and got a lot of my pages to the first pages of 
Google and I trained agents in how to do that. That's how, again, how I got started with Jennifer King, showing her how to get hers up there. She went into an office that she worked in the neighboring county, went over to that Remax of Reading is the second largest Remax office in the country. Jennifer moved up to number one in there by using these strategies, and she killed them. They invited me out there. I went to Reading and met with those guys. They're wonderful people. And I had a ball doing with them and showing them how to do some interesting search engine optimization using their, their lead street sites. And so agents are learning that little by little, but it is, uh, you know, it's something we, we, we use as a value, part of our value here at, at our office to train agents in how to do that when they get started. We had an agent come in, move into the hottest market in town up in the Woodlands. He lives up there. And anything you search about the Woodlands, he pops up first. In the hottest market around could you tell us one one idea or concept of how you're getting higher in the search engines? Learn to use keywords. And it is not those tags. What were those meta tags, not meta tags. It's learn to use your keywords in your relevant content. Remember, relevancy, no matter what, whether it's emails or pages online or anything in Google or life relationships, Relevance. It all has to be relevant. Relevant is a key word. Every message you send has to be relevant. It doesn't. It can't be this generic, just crap that's designed to put the image building. You know, image advertising is gone. If you ask me, it's got to be relevant. Very relevant stuff. Well, Sam, I want to shift gears for a minute. I want to talk about your team. You mentioned all the way up to 2006, you were basically running around doing all the sell side yourself and had some administrative folks helping out in the back end. But you've changed the structure of your team. Could you could you tell us, just walk down real quick, say the positions on your team right now and give us kind of a big picture real quick? I have two listing agents. One does the... Uh you know, goes out and does the listing appointments. The other does all our distressed properties. That's my daughter, Katie. And uh, then I have three buyer agents. And then I have two transaction coordinators, one that does the list the sellers, one that does the buyers. I've also got a photographer. And then our company, part of our team, uh, has a videographer full-time. So you have two listing agents. As you said, one is working the distressed side and one is working the retail side. That's a newer position out there in the market. There's a lot of curiosity about it. First of all, how did you find the right person for the listing agent position? <laughs> well, I, I, you know, I believe in seeking talent. However, this boy sought me. He wanted to work for Pear Sam. He got his real estate license. He came in here and he said, I want to work for Pear Sam. And I sat down and met with him. He was real edgy. And I went, well, okay. So I started training him. He started doing some things, and he started taking on a lot of the duties of the doing of the staging for people. He had a great eye. And I thought, this guy, this kid's got this eye, this concept down. And so I let him go out on a listing or two to kind of back me up. He came back with the listings, and, uh, you know, he sort of worked his way into the job. But I'm coaching. When a top producing agent now I've referred to you to talk to 
she's at the level where she needs to hire a listing agent because what happens is someone like myself or like her, she's killing herself. She's younger than me, and uh, she's going, you know, working early in the morning to late at night, going on every listing appointment herself. The hardest thing for agents to let go of is that thought that I, if this listing agent goes out and he doesn't get that listing, you come back, you know you could have gotten it. And so you're going to give up a little bit of efficiency in exchange for a, a life, a giant bit of life where you actually start to leverage and build more. And uh, so it just kind of depends on what you're looking for at that point uh, as to how you see those. But that is just a challenge of letting go. Do you know that during that time when I was doing all the work, I, I believed, too, I was such a control freak that I was the only one who could put a for sale sign in the yard correctly. Now, agents listening to me are going to relate to this. They're going to know that it has to be just like this. It has to be right here. You have to see it this direction. And I, I knew I was the only one who could do it. So when I had my stomach surgery in 2003, the doctor said, oh, you can't do that for six months. I almost wished I hadn't had it done then. It killed me. But I had Arthur here who was one of our first employees, and so I coaxed Arthur. He's now our buyer coordinator, but he was our first employee at our company 14 years ago. I said, okay, Arthur, you're going to have to put these signs up. They won't let me. Well, you know what? Arthur could put signs in the yard just as well as I ever could. I've never put up another for sale sign since. So once I realized somebody else can go out and sell me better than I can sell myself and get a listing, you know what? I don't want to go on a listing appointment anymore. So it becomes the easiest thing in the world after you've let go of the first thing. It sounds like the training process was you had the, the listing agent recruit shadow you on your listing appointments to pick up the process that, that you were going through. Does that sound right? No, 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 no. I can't stand having anyone shadow me. I've done that twice in my life. I hate it. What happens is... I've tried to take them out, let them do the listing, and me just like helping agents to train them. I jump in and start taking control. I can't stand it. I can't do it. Won't do it. No, I got to show you how to do it, and then send you out in the field. I'm gonna throw you in the deep end, and you either sink or swim. That's it. I'm not going out and shadowing and holding your hand. I can't do it, and I think that's a mistake. Sounds like it comes back to your mom and how she trained you. Oh, yeah, <laughs> you'd be darn right. <laughs> Only, you know, it would have been punishment if I didn't come back with it. I worked against <laughs> Oh, <punishment>. no. <laughs> okay, yeah, oh, she was a tough old bird. <laughs> uh, that's great. Well, Sam, a lot of the folks listening to us, they, they're thinking about bringing in a, a listing agent or a buyer agent, and one of their big fears is always compensation. Would you mind disclosing to us how you're compensating your, your listing agents and your buyer agents? I believe anybody working on a real estate team ought to be paid on a percentage basis of every deal and keep everybody working toward the end, okay, toward the same goal. There should be nobody hourly. I don't care what position they have. That's a giant challenge. The other thing is uh, the max is 50%. Any buyer agent gets. You start paying more than that, that's the biggest mistake agents make in hiring a team is they want to pay too much. And, uh, you know, beyond that, you've got to play the numbers yourself, but 
keep it short. If you'll talk to every major business coach in the industry, every one of them will tell you the same thing. Agents get in here and start offering 70 30s and 80 20s. Well, hell, yeah, give me the leads and give me 80%. I'll take that deal all day long. I'd go to work somewhere else for that. So that that's a giant mistake. You can't do it. You you know, and that's, that's the biggest challenge, the biggest mistake of them all. I've had my... Uh, this team together for a long time. They want to stay here. They make more money on my team than they do on their own. You have to find the correct individuals, though, who don't want to go out and build a name for themselves. Don't hire the agent who's going to be the best name in the business next. No, hire the agent that doesn't want to do that, that wants to work in the team environment. You know, be careful about that. I've seen uh, teams break up because each one has an ego. And, uh, you know... They all want the recognition of the deal in the team. The, only the main guy is going to get the, or girl is going to get the uh, recognition and the, the award. So keep that in mind. If you've got to have the award and you've got to be on the front line, then you've got to do your own team. You can't be on a team. Are you profitable? I'm making more money today than I've made in my entire life. Would you mind disclosing to us the percentage? I don't want absolute dollars, but the percentage of your gross that's falling to the bottom line is profit? It's about 25%. My profit margin is right at about 25%. And a real estate team or agent should probably be upwards of 40%. I know some that run 50%. But, uh, and so at 25% profit margin, when I'm doing referrals at 25%, I'm at, at break even. When I start paying those 40%, I said this earlier, I'm in the hole. I don't do it. can't do it. So... Interestingly, most agents don't know their profit margins. They don't know what percent of their cost goes into everything. But I learned QuickBooks back in about when it first came out in 1997. And actually, my statistics were in an old version of QuickBooks that I had tucked away on an old computer over here. When you made me dig out my 2006 numbers, <laughs> I have uh, the numbers that go back to 1998 when I first got QuickBooks and learned it. And... Uh, so I did. I saw all that, and I was like, okay. I, and now I've been studying what I really, I'd forgotten I had it, to tell you the truth, because I have a director of production and finance now that, uh, for the company that does all our bookkeeping. He does our team bookkeeping and the company bookkeeping all at once, so I don't even go into an account anymore. I just review numbers. I've moved, I've leveraged myself. I don't got meet buyers and sellers, and I'm, you know, I, I'm a company owner. I'm trying to hold my main people accountable to the goals and standards we set up each week. So I'm working from a different model now. I'm not doing the field work anymore. Sam, do you pay yourself a salary? No, my team is still set up so that the agents all get their commissions, and then I work off the, le the what's left, and we've done it in a budget. We are making a move right now for the first of the year. I'm transferring the team into an entity that will be managed by a group by our primary buyer agent, our primary listing agent, and myself. So we're going to have a three-person team. Of course, I'll be in charge, but I'm going to train these others to run the team without me. And then the team, I mean, this entity is going to purchase the team and all its stuff from me and give me a percentage off the top. And it will run a production uh, percentage and pay bonuses to everybody who's uh, our, our primary people. So we're going to look at some different compensation models for the future because I'm going to leverage myself to Maui <laughs> and, <laughs> and get out of it. So I just want to 
be in that position where I can start to do that and train them to take over in case something happens to me down the road and I'm not able to serve in the same capacity so that the team does not skip beat. And that's our current focus. I'm doing that for our company as well, by the way. So I'm changing the entire structure and model right now to get to those points. Sam, what drives you? Money. I'm driven by money. Was, you know, I, I, I think about that. I, you know, I had this argument, and I, I will tell you, uh, without being too revealing, it was, a, it was a meeting of the top ten brokers, broker owners of REMAX franchises in the state of Texas. They, they, one of the top ones, they all, they're not even, it's a couple who are not even realtors. They're, they're, they're schmoozers. And they're very good at schmoozing their agents and keeping everybody happy and loving them and having parties and, you know, doing all that sort of thing. And so they are motivated by their love for these people and their people to like them and that sort of thing. I couldn't care less where anybody likes me. I've got friends. You know, the real estate business, if you want to work with me, it's about learning to make yourself money. I'll teach you how to, make, get, to grow your wealth in this business. And so consequently, it's all about, for me, the money. Um, now, I can be nice and be sweet, and I can love on people and be sweet with them because there's money at the end. But I look toward that reward. And I know that drives some people nuts. That makes them extremely uncomfortable. In fact, in that meeting when I was sharing that, I had three or four people get very uncomfortable. Others are like, hey, I'm with you. So it's, you know, there is a percentage of people that are completely focused on the units and the dollars, and that's me. There's the honest truth. Sam, why have you been so successful? Because I work. When I have, I listen to that and my memory is the first thing that went, unfortunately. But the guy that publishes Success Magazine spoke at a convention I was at a year or two ago. Maybe it was at a CRS convention. I don't know. But he was talking about success. And uh, the publishers of Success Magazine, which has been around since the late 1800s, each publisher has interviewed the most successful people in the United States and has archived those discussions and those interviews with all these people. I'm talking about from Andrew Carnegie to all the presidents to corporate leaders, lots of very successful people. Only one thing was consistent among every successful person in that entire group. Only one thing. Hard work. Every one of them worked hard. This thing about luck or being at the right place at the right time, okay, it's hard work. If, you know, um, our, our philosophy here, our code word at our whole office is Nike, because if I say Nike, you say, just do it. You have to do things. Here they are, whether you can do them or not. That's like I, I, when you asked about my listing agent, did I take him out and help him through and show him how to do it? Well, I briefly went over it, but I threw him in the deep end. Now just do it. Come, don't come back without the listing. You have to do things. And lots of people sit around and study it and listen to it and think about it and never do anything. And I do things. If I come up with an idea, like I've had about five while I'm talking to you today, Mike, I'll try them. It's part of what I call my five steps ahead philosophy. My goal in my life is to stay five steps ahead of my competition. Now, when I get five steps ahead, what happens? They catch up. They copy me. They catch up. I've always been a leader like that. So if I'm going to stay five steps ahead, that means I've got to be doing 15 other things because 10 of them won't work. 
So I've got to come up with ideas, think of things to do, and then implement them and find the ones that do work that no one else is doing. So stay five steps ahead of the competition. Now, it's easy because we can look backward to look forward because people have lived before us. And we can look back. There's no magic pill. There's no, you know, I can't find that, you know, pull the thorn out of my paw and suddenly I, the world is on fire. That's just not it. It's hard work picking out those things that do work and trying them and doing lots of them. Sam, if you're going to advise a brand new agent just getting in the business, what would you tell them to do first? First thing they ought to do, and I, I do advise a lot of brand new agents. I coach tons of them. Uh, our mission is to help agents, and we work with, we're a learning-based environment. And so part of my, what I've been doing for the last year is taking everything I've ever done in writing out step-by-step strategies and videotaping them. And I've created those on an online website for our agents to copy and do everything that I've ever done to be successful. Because I tell agents, the first thing you ought to do, and, and I'll share this with you, if your goal is to make a million dollars a year, now I go back in my early life, I wanted to make a million dollars a year. In 1975, my mother was selling houses, well, let me go back to the 60s, she was selling homes that cost $5,000, $7,500, but she'd sell three or four or five houses a day. Okay, so she made a lot of money. I mean, of course, a Cadillac back then was 200 a month. So things changed quite a bit, but just fast forward it. That's uh, kind of where we are today. So the first thing you, you ought to do, if you want to make a million dollars a year, is go see what somebody who's making a million dollars a year is doing and do the same things. Copy it. Do it a little differently, but copy it. So I think about, I went to college. I went to a Baptist school. And um, I learned from people who had PhDs who probably made fifty, sixty thousand dollars a year back then, and I was wanting to make a million dollars a year. So how is someone who makes fifty or sixty thousand dollars a year going to teach me how to make a million dollars a year? Bottom line, they're not, and they didn't. So I had to go find people who were hugely successful and copy and model them and do what they did. So the first thing I tell an agent, it's part of our value proposition, you want to learn how to make a million dollars a year, well, I'm getting close to two. Come learn from us. I'll show you. Not only will I show you, I've got it all written out in step-by-step format. You can join us and and go online and watch day-by-day everything I've ever done to make that kind of money, and then you can do it. So just do it. You know what the interesting thing is about that? How many people come in and want to, they say they want to, and then don't do it? That's the majority. What do you think the difference is between the people that you see that do move forward and go for the hard work and implement the ideas that you put in front of them and those that say they want to but don't? Have you noticed any distinction between the two groups? It's very hard to pick that out up front, except that one thing I've learned is that most people think that real estate is a people business and a house business. How many times have new agents said to me, I got into real estate because I like people and I like houses. And I say, well, we'll give you six months in that and see how that works out for you. Right? Real estate is a task business. The goal is to set up how good are you at setting tasks for yourself and then achieving them. If, if I said, okay, here are what you need to do each day. Make 
five expired calls, write four expired mailers, write five absentee owner notes, make th- uh, visit three FISBOs, do these things each day, and you'll make $200,000 a year, would you do it each day? Well, first you've got to learn how to do it, how this best approach. Okay, got that down. Here's an exact plan for what you need to do each day. And we've tracked the numbers over years so we know what the conversion rates are in, in all 10 areas of where lead gen, leads come from. We know what the conversion rates are, and we boil that down to a talk rate. How many talks of substance per lead do I need, uh, of each type do I need to make in order to get one closed transaction? And it becomes mathematical for how many things I do each day. So if you want to make a million dollars a year, we'll make that down into a mathematical formula that will show you how many people you need to talk to every single day. Now, will you do it? You know what? Most people will look at you and say yes, and people who are task-oriented achieve this. Those are the agents who become top producers. You'll find many top producers are indefinitely, many are not top, not people persons, they don't look you in the eye, but they're extremely focused on getting tasks done. Maybe they had disciplinarian parents like I did, and it made you get things done or, you know, out of fear. Others do it. I'm not sure how. But it is my, the biggest distinction I see is people who are task-oriented and can actually set tasks and then don't have to have somebody making sure they're getting them done every single minute, like a boss. Those people will do well. Sam, I've come to the end of my questions for today. Do you have any parting thoughts for the agents? You just do it. Learn it and do it. Don't, you know, um, I, I could sit here and quote every top business coach in the industry in real estate because I've learned from all of them. But one of my favorite things that David Knox always says is you don't have to be good, you have to be there. And, and what he's really saying is, you don't have to be the best. Just go do it. Don't wait till you're perfect at something. Go try it. Go do it today. And that's, that's what big. I urge people to do. If you're sitting there just listening, listening, and thinking, trying to learn and figure things out, just go do it. Just go do it. Sam, I I do want to take a moment here. I, I know that uh, I, I understand that you uh, have a health challenge with your kidneys and that there, there may be a solution for that. Could you give us maybe a one or two minute explanation of the challenge that you're facing and how agents listening can help? Yes, certainly. You know, I am in stage five of kidney failure and I'm reaching a point where I'm going to need dialysis or a kidney transplant to live. And a kidney transplant is the best option. Right now, my end, my end of days, listen, by 3 o'clock in the afternoon, I'm, I'm reaching all the symptoms of end-stage renal failure. I can't focus. My concentration is gone, all those sorts of things. I'm ready to go home and, and go to bed. But, you know, I don't, uh, I, I, uh, I don't let that hinder me. I have learned to drink uh, matcha green tea powder and get my energy back up again and try to refocus in the afternoons in a different way, even if it's artificially. But you can read more about that. I do need a kidney donation. I'm at the end of the year three, and I have not on dialysis. I've been on the list this long. I was moving up the list, but they're changing the rules in December, meaning I'm probably going to go way back down the list because I'm getting too old, and I've not been on dialysis. And they look at people who've been on dialysis and are younger for kidneys first. 
I've had 50 live donors apply and get turned down for one reason or another. They don't just take anybody's kidney who matches. So if you'd like to read more about that and you know someone who might be interested in giving up uh, one kidney, heck, you got two, you only need one. And I have information about that on my blog. It's called uh, www.mykidneyssuck.com. So you can read the whole thing at mykidneyssuck.com. Thanks. I'd appreciate a kidney. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, Sam. And, and if anyone out there is uh, listening and, and thinks they'd be interested in that, please go over to Sam's website, take a look, and, and contact Sam and, and give him some support there. So, Sam, I appreciate you taking so much time to talk with us today. Oh, you're welcome, Mike. Uh, good luck with your uh, business and uh, the mastermind agent. Well, Sam, thank you for talking with us today and sharing your story. I hope you find a new kidney soon. You are a testament to hard work and lifelong dedication. You find a system that works and stick to it, although you're also willing to adapt to changing markets and technology. Your mother set you on this path and you've taken it all the way. And now, almost 9,000 closings later, you're ready to leverage yourself to Maui. Thank you for sharing and being our top agent of the month. And join us next call when we talk to an agent who gets 90% of her business from past clients and sphere of influence and sold 147 homes last year. Find out who she is on the next success call. If you like the show and want to know when the next one's coming out, click the subscribe button on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you want to hear more episodes like this, give the show a five-star review and write a quick comment. I read them all, and it motivates me to keep going and share the top agent success stories with you. Thanks. If you're looking for more ways to generate leads, check out our sponsor, RealGTV, real estate agent lead generation television, and their giant database library of video trainings where top agents reveal, demonstrate, and discuss their best lead generation methods. Visit RealGTV, R-E-A-L-G dot TV. If you're low on funds or just want to get the maximum leverage, check out my masterclass webinar titled Top 5 Free Lead Sources for Real Estate Agents. Learn more at FreeLeadTime.com. That's FreeLeadTime.com. Oh, and if you have a real estate friend who needs some inspiration, tell them about the Success Calls podcast. And don't you forget to subscribe right now to hear all the great top agent ideas. Keep moving forward. You've been listening to Success Calls on the Mastermind Agent Network, where top real estate agents from across North America reveal their success secrets, strategies, and systems in up-close and personal interviews. You can find all the calls at www.mastermindagent.com.